Good morning. My name is Jerry Letourneau. I'm one of the elders here at Community Covenant Church, and we're glad that you could join with us on this Sunday morning as we continue to study Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Before we begin this morning, I'd just like to take a moment in prayer. Our Father, there is so much for us in these chapters of Matthew as Jesus reveals your truths to us. And we pray that you would make us sensitive to what you may be saying to us today and help us through your Holy Spirit to take these truths and to allow them to, to, and allow them to transform us to conform to the image of your Son. And we ask this, Lord, that you would be glorified. Amen. Have you ever been too close to a situation or too deep into a project that you need to step back a little bit and get a better perspective? Sometimes taking a bird's eye view helps us to see uh, a little bit better in the direction that we're heading and that the fine details all align towards the goal that we're heading towards. Sometimes this is called seeing the forest through the trees. Have you ever gone to the top of a high-rise building, skyscraper, and you kind of like look over the city, and you see all of these places that you're familiar with when you drive by your car, but somehow from this upper perspective, you get a little bit better perspective on the distance to the buildings and the proximity to each other. This is a, a perspective, a view that we don't really see when we're at the ground level. And so, I'd like to this morning, before we take a look at our text in Matthew 7 this morning, I'd like to do just that and to kind of step back a bit and get the biggest setting for where we are in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. It starts in Matthew chapter 5 with Jesus seated teaching his disciples and the crowd that had gathered to see and to hear him. The setting is the master teaching his disciples. And unlike any rabbi who preceded him, Jesus speaks with unprecedented authority. The events that Matthew has recorded so far in his gospel have shown us that this is in fact God incarnate. He who created all that is has now taken the form of a simple human being and is revealing and teaching things that would otherwise be unknown to us. John's gospel says that God became flesh and dwelt among us. As we take step back and we look at the overall view of where we are so far in the Sermon on the Mount. In chapter 5, Jesus presented the Beatitudes, Jesus' teaching that God's fellowship and his blessings are poured out onto the, those who are citizens of his kingdom. And then he talked of the Old Testament law and the prophets that were read every Sabbath day in the synagogue, and he escalates those to reveal the ultimate truth and the ultimate standard behind them. The prohibition to murder escalates to anger and abuse, the prohibition against anger and abusive speech. The prohibition on adultery is escalated to the prohibition of lust. When we're compelled to walk one mile, we're instead to go two miles. We're to love our enemies and to pray for those who hurt us. In fact, Jesus told his disciples, to be perfect, even as our Heavenly Father is perfect. In chapter 6, he warns against the showiness in religion, particularly in giving of charity, praying, fasting. And then he provides the models for his disciples as to how they should pray. He goes on to show that true citizens of God's kingdom 
will store up for themselves treasures in heaven, as opposed to those who are citizens of the kingdom of this world who store up for themselves earthly treasures. He said, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And then he encourages his hearers, saying that his father will watch over and provide for those who are members of his heavenly kingdom, those who are his children. All of this overview brings us to where we are today in chapter 7 of Matthew's Gospel, a section of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus now turns his attention to the subject of judgment. And Jesus, like many preachers who have followed him throughout the centuries, is concluding his sermon here on the Mount by bringing his hearers to a place of decision. This morning, we're going to focus first on verses 7 to 13, which address how do we petition God in our prayers. And then we'll conclude by looking at verses 14 to 20, the section where Jesus, after completing his sermon, confronts his hearers to make a decision. So let's begin with Matthew, verses 7 to 12. And Jesus says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, the door will be open. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. As I said, Jesus has now turned his attention in the sermon to the topic of judgment. We saw last week that Jesus, uh, when Jesus said to judge not lest you be judged, and then his teaching where he said, don't try to take the speck out of your brother's eye when there's a log or there's a beam in your own eye. Now the verses this morning to, to, to ask, to seek, and to knock, don't at first glance seem to fit into this flow of Jesus' teaching about judgment. Some Bible scholars see this seventh chapter of Matthew as just a collection of concise teachings by Jesus on various matters just kind of randomly placed by Matthew with no direct connection to the previous or the preceding uh, verses. But in, in preparation for this morning, I found a few ways in which scholars do connect these verses to the overall theme of judgment. One school of thought looks at verse 1, where Jesus says, judge not, lest you be judged. And then they contrast that to verse 6, where Jesus says, do not throw your, your, your pearls to the pigs, and do not give the dogs what is sacred. They then ask the question, if Jesus commands us not to judge, how then are we to decide between those that are dogs and those that are pigs and those that are not? If we're required to make a judgment, then how do we decide? The answer, they say, is found in the text we're looking at this morning. If we persistently ask, seek, and knock, then God will give us the discernment we need to know the difference. He will reveal to us those that are his and those that are not. The second school of thought that I found was, was I found to be more persuasive and one that 
was more cohesive with connecting the entirety of the seventh chapter of Matthew. As we saw in the Sermon on the Mount, the, uh, as, we saw, as we saw in our overview, excuse me, the Sermon on the Mount presents the kingdom of God in contrast with the kingdom of this world. Jesus presents for us a standard, a way of life that is unattainable by human efforts. We saw how he escalated the demands of the law to a place where no one was able to live up to. In fact, he said that we were to be perfect, even as our heavenly Father is perfect. If there's one thing we know for sure, and I put myself at the top of this list, when it comes to the standard that Jesus spoke of, we will never be perfect. So then, how does someone become a part of the kingdom of heaven, a citizen of that kingdom that Jesus spoke of? We come once again to the very core of the Christian message. How does one become a child of God? In Galatians 2, Paul says, know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. And then in Romans, he says, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. The perfection that Jesus speaks of is not a perfection of our own doing. We're totally incapable of living up to the law. Not to mention the elevated standard that Jesus has presented here in the Sermon on the Mount. But even while we are broken sinners, we can in fact be perfected before God. Our perfection is not our own. It is through Jesus Christ who took our due punishment on the cross. We are now the righteousness. We are now righteous before God, not of our own doing. Our righteousness is in Christ. These are very profound theological concepts and yet can be expressed in very simple terms. We were guilty before God because we failed to be perfect. We failed to live up to the standards of holiness required to be citizens of God's kingdom. But God so loved us that he sent his son into this world so that whoever believes in him would become his child, a citizen of his kingdom. How does one do this? How does one become a child of God? We ask, we seek, we knock. Do you remember our teachings in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, where Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For we who find ourselves at this place, spiritually bankrupt before God, recognizing our complete inadequacy before God, we ask that through the cross of Christ, who died for us, that he forgive us. We continuously seek to become more and more like our Lord and Savior, and to be in his perfect will for our lives. And we keep on knocking on God's throne room confessing our sins and petitioning for our daily needs. But whether we consider these verses as applying for our need to have wisdom and discernment to make judgments about how to engage others, 
or as to, as to how these verses might apply to our asking to become members of God's kingdom or seeking to be more like our Lord, there are some very universal and important principles that can always apply to our petitioning God in our prayer. Let's look at some of these. In verse 7, Jesus says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. And then in 8, he reemphasizes this, saying, For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. These two verses, in these two verses, Jesus is presenting the ask portion of his teaching. But in verses 9 to 11, he's showing us how God filters this ask to doing what is best for us. Look how he puts it. For which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? If we read just verses 7 and 8, God becomes almost like a, like a genie in the bottle, somehow suggesting that if we're persistent, then whatever we ask him, he'll grant to us. A type of confess it and you possess it type of Christianity. Now, there's a fundamental rule that applies when we read our Bibles, and that is that we must interpret the Scriptures in the full counsel of what God has revealed. The danger is that we will interpret verses in isolation out of their context. Jesus is teaching us here that in circumstances, times, in places where we find ourselves asking for a bread, asking for bread or a fish, that this request could in fact have the effect of a stone or a snake in our lives. Oftentimes, if God answered our prayers in the way or at the time we ask, it would be the worst thing possible for us. Jesus here tells us that not only will God answer us, but that he will answer us in his wisdom and in his love because he truly knows what we need and what's best for us. Those who are truly members of God's kingdom and call Jesus their Lord are his servants. We desire to serve him and to do the will of our Father. Our lives are no longer our own. We were bought with a price and we long to be in his perfect will for our lives. We saw this a few weeks ago when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, saying, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God hears our prayers. Sometimes he says no. Sometimes it's not right now. And sometimes he simply alters our prayers for our benefit or for his own purposes. I often think of this in the Old Testament story of Abraham and Lot found in Genesis 18. If you know the story, you'll remember that Abraham's nephew Lot and his family were living in Sodom. Messengers from God came and told Abraham that God was going to destroy the city because of its wickedness. Abraham, fearing for his nephew, asked the Lord if he would spare the city if he found 50 righteous persons living there, to which the Lord said yes. Abraham got some courage and asked the Lord if he would spare the city if there were 45 righteous people living there. And Abraham, again, and the Lord said to him, yes, that for 45 righteous people that he would spare the city. Abraham asked again, what about 40? 
What about 30? What about 20? And finally, the Lord agreed that for the sake of 10 people that he would not destroy the city. When the messengers of God went into the city, they found it so evil and sinful that they told Lot and his family to leave immediately because the city was going to be destroyed. Lot and his two daughters were, in fact, spared the destruction. But you see, God answered Abraham's prayer, but he did not give Abraham what Abraham had asked, which was to spare the city. But he did give Abraham the desire of his heart, which was to spare his nephew Lot. There's several lessons to be learned from these passages regarding our petitioning God in our prayers. New Testament scholar Kenneth Wiest writes that these passages can actually be translated as, keep on asking and it shall be given you. Keep on seeking and you shall find. Keep on reverently knocking and it shall be opened to you. He goes on to write that from this fuller translation of the text, we can learn the following lessons. And he gives us, number one, if we do not receive answers to prayer at once, we should persevere in prayer until we do or until God shows us that the petition is not according to his will. Let me say that again. If we do not receive answers to prayer at once, we should persevere in prayer until we do or until God shows us that the petition is not according to his will. Secondly, he offers, in some cases, it takes time for God to answer a petition. It takes time to grow a rose, and likewise, it often takes time for him to change the stony hearts of us sinners so they bow in submissive faith to the Lord Jesus. Thirdly, he suggests when we keep praying, God keeps working on our behalf. Our meager Christian experience is often related to our meager prayer life. James says that you have not because you ask not. And lastly, we have no right to demand of God that he answers our prayer, but we may keep reverently knocking with the hand of faith. After these verses, Jesus then proceeds and brings the body of his sermon to a close, putting a capstone over the entire discourse, saying, so in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. This is what James, what James in chapter 2 refers to as the royal law of love. It's a lifestyle exemplified by those who are citizens of God's kingdom. Now, as I mentioned earlier, that Jesus would conclude his sermon by bringing his hearers to a place of decision. Now, after two and a half chapters of preaching about the kingdom of heaven, he sternly, advi he sternly advises his hearers to make a decision. And he says, enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. These might be the most sobering words that we have on record from Jesus. And there's, there's so much to say here, 
and in the next several verses, but time is limited, so we, we are only going to be able to scratch the surface. But be sure that all of Jesus' words to this point were intended to bring his hearers to this very place of decision. Now, note first off that there's only two roads. There is no third option. The picture that Jesus is painting for us is, a, is, of, is, is of us walking along and suddenly coming to a fork in the road with two gates before us. There's one on the left, which is a very wide and broad gate, and a great crowd of people are pouring in through the gate. On the other side, there's a very small gate, and notice that Jesus said, few find it. It's a small gate that could easily be missed. It's so small that it will only allow one person at a time, much like a, like a turnstile that doesn't allow you to carry anything through. As we look through the wide gate, it leads to a very broad road with great crowds walking along. But through the narrow gate is a very straight road that continues on, very confined and narrow, with pressing sides to the left and the right. Scholars define the original Greek word narrow to also be translated as rough or full of trouble and tribulation. Only a few people are traveling along this way. If you will, there's even a, a signpost over both of the gates with an arrow that says heaven this way. But Jesus is telling us, however, that only one signpost is true. The broad road ends in an abyss of destruction, while the narrow road leads to life. He goes on to say, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruits you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. Throughout his sermon, Jesus referred to the teachings and the practices of the religious leaders of his day and contrasted those with the true intent of God's law, religious practices versus true devotion to God. There's true religion and there's false religion. True religion comes in one form, the word of God, the work of Christ, and the gospel. Jesus said in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. There's only one way to God, and that is through the narrow gate, which is Jesus Christ. Notice Jesus' warning in verse 15 to watch out for the false prophets. False religion and false religious leaders put people on the broad road that leads to destruction. John R. W. Stott says that the broad road is spacious and easy. There's plenty of room on it for diversity of opinions and laxity of morals. It's the road of tolerance and permissiveness. It has no curbs, no boundaries of either thought or conduct. Travelers on this road follow their own inclinations, that is, the desires of the human heart in its fallenness." Unquote. By contrast, the narrow, gate, the, narrow gate, the narrow gate requires 
not just a mild association with Jesus or some kind of a general affiliation, but a radical commitment to Jesus as the one who is the King and the Lord of our lives. To enter into his kingdom is to declare him as the Lord who shapes all of life for us. The narrow road calls for narrowness of obedience to the Lord. It calls for godliness, purity, virtue, holy living. You can't live any way you want. The way is difficult because it goes against the grain of our sinful, selfish human nature. Yet at the same time, our Lord promises that he will be there on that narrow path to lead us and to help us along the way. On this narrow road, our thoughts about God and truth are somehow both enlarged and yet at the same time confined. Those who follow Christ will not believe what most people believe. And those on the narrow way will not be popular in their beliefs. But the narrow road reveals a God that goes far beyond any vision ever dreamed by anyone on the broad road. The narrow way is completely fulfilling. It provides true freedom and true joy and ultimately leads to eternal life that Jesus defines as knowing him and knowing the Father. And I want you to see uh, here that Jesus mentions the gate before he mentions the road. Now, if there's some significance to this order, it's an interesting visual for us that the kingdom of God is entered into here and now, in this life, at the beginning of the journey, rather than at the end of the journey. When we enter into God's kingdom through the gate, that gate is Jesus Christ. And then we spend a lifetime surrendering our own desires and our own self-will that we might become more and more like him. It's interesting also that the visual aligns with the sequence of justification and sanctification, the beginning and the continuing of the Christian life. Lastly, Jesus says that a good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Here, Jesus is talking about the final judgment when he will stand as judge over all men. Jesus is clearly teaching that the bearing of good fruit is a criteria he will use to distinguish the true from the counterfeit. A more complete picture of what he's saying becomes clearer in the next verses when he goes on to say, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and drive out demons in your name? and perform many miracles, and then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Those who enter into eternal life on that judgment day will hear Jesus say that he knows them, rather than hearing those damning words of verse 23, that I never knew you. Now, let me be very clear in what I'm saying. We do not enter into eternal life because our good works somehow outweigh our bad works. We do not enter into eternal life because we're able to produce good fruits. Our salvation is by grace through faith, which is an unmerited gift from God brought about by the death of Jesus on the cross. We cannot earn salvation by obedience to laws or commandments. Salvation 
is a gift from God. So please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. What we see here is that those who receive God's gift of salvation, who are led by the Spirit of God, will obey him and will produce good fruits. In John 15, Jesus said, I am the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If we are in Christ, if we have entered through that small gate, we will bear fruit. Good fruit cannot be produced apart from Christ. There is a direct connection here. Those who are in Christ produce good fruit. Branches that are not in Christ wither and are thrown into the fire. Jesus goes on to say here, by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Again, we see that direct link that connects Jesus' disciples with bearing fruit. What Jesus is saying in these verses and is also said in several other places throughout the New Testament is not that producing good fruits will justify a person, but that the fruits validate that the person has been justified. Let me say that again. Producing good fruits does not justify a person, but it validates that the person has been justified. As an old preacher from years ago said, this is like seeing smoke coming out of a chimney. The fire may be in the fireplace, but you can't see that from the outside. But the smoke coming out of the chimney is an indication that there's a fire burning in the fireplace. If we are in Christ, if we have truly entered through the narrow gate, if we are truly in Christ, there will be smoke coming out of our chimneys. What can we conclude then? We enter through the small gate when we accept Jesus as our Savior, our Savior who cleanses us from our sins and makes us worthy to enter into his kingdom. As we journey down that narrow road as servants of our Lord, of our Lord the ups and the downs of that journey shape us to become more like him, and we produce the fruits of righteous living. The title of this message asks the question, what about God's will? We saw first off that God answers prayer according to his will. Ours is to both desire and to align ourselves to his will. And then secondly, First Peter says, the Lord wills that none would perish, that all would come to repentance. God's ultimate will is that each one of us would enter through that small gate and travel down that narrow road that leads to eternal life. This message finds us all in, in, in many places along our journey of life. But this teaching from Jesus is universal. It applies to everyone, worldwide and throughout the ages. There is no alternative. Everyone is on one of these two roads. For most of us listening today, I would suspect that at 
some point in your life, you've made a conscious decision to enter through that small gate. It's a decision that you had to make on your own. You don't enter through because of heritage or church affiliation. And as we travel down that road, it's a narrow road, it's a straight road. There are little deviations off to the side. Maybe we climb off the road and take another path. But the Lord is very faithful and said that he would never leave us or forsake us. He's there on that journey, leaves the 99, goes off and finds us. And he will find us and bring us back to that path. And for some, if you've never done so, I pray that you would find that narrow path, that narrow gate, which is Jesus Christ, and you would enter into that gate and travel on us, travel that road that leads to eternal life. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this time this morning in your word. We thank you, Lord, that your ultimate will is that all men would be saved and that you sent your Son into this world, that you would do exactly that, that you would reach out and draw your people to yourself. And Lord, as your children, we desire more than anything to be in your will. We ask that through your Holy Spirit, you would do a work in our lives. Bring us to that place, Lord. Bring us to that place where we strive and desire to be in your perfect will, that our lives might glorify you. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.